when it comes to ensuring your company has top-notch security practices. Things can get complicated fast. With Vanta, you can automate compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, HIPAA, and more. Vanta's market-leading trust management platform can help you unify security program management with a built-in risk register and reporting and streamline security reviews with AI-powered security questionnaires. Over 7,000 fast-growing companies like Atlassian, Flow Health, and Quora use Vanta to manage risk and prove security in real time. You can watch Vanta's on-demand video at vanta.com slash decoder to learn more. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash decoder. Support for this podcast comes from another podcast. The world's most valuable resource, it's actually data. Our data, based on our behaviors, is frequently being gathered, tracked, stored, and sold. So what does this mean for us? Join host Rafi Krikorian for season two of Technically Optimistic, where he'll take you on a deep dive into how our data is being used and what we can do about it. From social media feeds to foundational human rights, Krikorian leads us into territories both familiar and unexpected with openness and genuine curiosity. New episodes of Technically Optimistic drop every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Decoder. I'm Neelai Patel, editor-in-chief of The Verge, and Decoder is my show about big ideas and other problems. Today, I'm talking to Logitech CEO Bracken Darrell. Now, Logitech is one of those ubiquitous companies. It's been around since 1981. It sells all kinds of important things that connect to computers of all shapes and sizes. Mice, keyboards, cases, webcams, you name it. When Bracken took over as CEO in 2013, he focused the company around growth. He started making acquisitions like blue microphones and invested heavily in software. In fact, the last time I talked with Bracken, it was the end of 2019, and he laid out a vision of Logitech as a software and services company in addition to that familiar hardware business. Unfortunately, 2020 happened right after that conversation, and the pandemic sent a huge number of people to work from home. Suddenly, Logitech keyboards and mice and webcams were the hottest things around. I actually went to buy a Logitech webcam in the middle of 2020, and I paid like a $200 markup from a gray market reseller because demand was just that high. But now, 20 months into this thing, Logitech has met the demand and it's making new products specifically designed for working from home. Bracken and I talked about that, how Logitech met all that demand, whether the pandemic has changed his overall plans for the company, and how the supply chain issues around the world affect his very physical hardware business. We also talked about Logitech's structure. Bracken pretty much lets the various teams at Logitech run independently. He doesn't stress about duplicating effort or syncing up product roadmaps. If you're a decoder listener, you know that that kind of divisional structure is all the way on the other end of the spectrum from the functional structure other companies like Airbnb use. There are pros and cons and trade-offs with both. Bracken really makes the case for speed and innovation with his approach. We also talked about how Bracken manages Logitech's relationships with the tech giants. After all, Logitech products tend to connect to products made by other companies. Logitech is one of the few companies with close access to Apple's very tightly controlled ecosystem. And it, of course, sells its products on Amazon, which has a long history of undercutting its own vendors. How does Bracken manage that? We also talked about the decision to kill the Harmony Universal Remote Line, the growth Logitech has seen in products for creators and streamers, the mess that is USB-C, the metaverse, and more. 
Bracken even told me what his favorite mechanical keyboard switches are. This episode has everything. One quick note, we ask all of our guests to record themselves locally for the best audio quality on the show, and we do record the Zoom call as a backup. Somewhere in the shuffle of producing this episode, the local audio on Bracken's side was lost, so we're using the Zoom audio. I'm going to be honest with you, it's not the best, but the conversation was really interesting, and we think you'll like it. Okay, Bracken Daryl, CEO of Logitech. Here we go. Bracken Daryl, you're the CEO of Logitech. Welcome to Decoder. Thank you for having me. The last time you and I had a chance to talk to each other, it was 2019. I had you on our other show, The Vergecast. You were just acquiring a company called Streamlabs. We were talking about becoming a software and services company. And then 2020 happened. And I, <laughs> we all went home. And I, I, I bought a Logitech webcam for like a 300% black market Markup. Oh, I'm sorry. It was impossible to get. It was great. It was, yeah, it was worth yeah. it. Um, but just tell me about that moment in the business for Logitech, right? Well, you were on a trajectory to become a, a larger kind of software and services organization, and then everyone went home and demand for things like keyboards and mice and webcams shot through the roof. The PC industry experienced a little bit of a, a renaissance. Uh, tell me about that moment in managing just through that early part of the pandemic, because it seemed really challenging. As, as it was for everybody listening and watching, it was surreal. I think it was March 8th or something. I was in New York. We'd just given an investor meeting. We kind of forecasted what we we're going to do over the next several years. And we kind of had a plan. And of course, this COVID thing was being talked about, but it wasn't a big deal. And then literally, I flew home and the next Monday. We shut the office down and everything was closed. You know, we had a very good outlook for the year. We were expected to grow you know, kind of 8 to 10%. And We've been growing at or near double digits for the last five or six years. And along this trajectory, these long-term secular trends that were, you know, video is going to take over audio, gaming is going to become the biggest collection of sports in the world, streaming and creating is going to be the next big, 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 big thing, even bigger than gaming. And then the mouse and the keyboard is going to continue to do just fine. What happened was all those businesses went through the floor. So they just dropped off of existence. Our sales completely collapsed for the first you know month or two after COVID. We knew it wasn't going to stay like that. And I don't think people knew what was going to happen yet. Our retail business had disappeared. We knew people were buying for working at home, but we sold mostly through retail. So the toughest part of that individual moment was, what do we do now? And a lot of people started cutting costs and conserving cash. And I had a discussion with my head of operations. And we said, you know, this thing's going to come roaring back because people got to work from home. But we won't have enough inventory to supply them if that's right. So I said to him, what do you think about making a big inventory bet? He said, yeah, I think you're right. So we made a very big inventory bet, and we're lucky we did. You know, we grew seventy four percent last year because we had the inventory to sell. That was an early bet. You were assuming people were going to work from home was going to be here for real. People yeah. are going to need mice and keyboards. That's a hardware business, right? Yeah. You've got to actually make the stuff and have it to sell. How early did you have to make that bet? What's the time from okay, we're going to increase inventory to I'm selling it. We have to make that bet, you know, a minimum of uh, two months. In some cases, you're making about four to six months in advance, depending on parts availability. It was a short-term bet, but we set the table for the next six to eight months. And uh, we were lucky. I mean, I won't pretend we were geniuses. We were really lucky. We, were, we just followed our intuition. Now it seems so obvious, you know, we should even be <laughs> even bigger. But. One of the things that's really interesting to me is I, I can see now, 
right? We're 18 months into this thing and some people are going back to the office and some people aren't. And that's going to play out however it plays out. But I can see now there are products that are designed to be work from home products. You have some, there are some like Zoom displays. There's a, a new webcam startup, which is not something we'd ever seen before. There's an ecosystem of companies and products now that are focused on, okay, people are going to work from home, not you're going to buy enterprise hardware and software for your house, which is kind of what was happening before. Yeah, so the, yeah. the bet you made to make sure you had the inventory, that was the existing product line, I'm assuming. That's right. When did you kind of start saying to yourself, we got to make new kinds of products for work from home? The lucky uh, situation we've been in is that those four secular trends I talked about, secular is long-term. So they're very long-term trends. So we were already making products that really fit into your home. And so we were already there. We really ran the same play. Instead of growing though at you know double digits, we were growing at first you know twenty five percent, then sixty four percent, then one hundred percent. So our our growth rates went way up, but it was the same play. We really didn't change the strategy, didn't change the portfolio. We were already building that portfolio for those people who were working in a hybrid environment. The hybrid environment just came much faster than we expected. On the flip side of things, building things with chips in them has gotten increasingly difficult. There's yeah. a chip shortage. There's a supply chain crunch. Yeah. As the trend increases, the demand is there. But what I've been told from everyone, it's actually the supply that's the problem. How have you been managing through that? We're kind of lucky in that we have a very distributed portfolio. So we're in 36 different categories, and probably 30 of those have chipsets. There are not 15 chipsets that go in 36 categories. They're like, I don't know how many, but a lot. When we were short on one chipset, we tried to shift our business to, to other products that didn't require that chipset. Between that and really having good long-term relationship with our suppliers, we've probably managed around that better than most companies have, but we're not immune to it. So we've had to develop alternative sources of supply. We've had, you know, If you've talked to people like me, and I know you have before, you know that we've got, like, instead of working 100% of the time on new products, we're working 80% of our time on alternative supply where we can use a different chipset in an existing product. That's largely over for us. We're most of the way through that. I mean, I would say we're 80% of the way through that. We still have some limitations, but they're not terrible now. When I've talked to other CEOs in other industries, the predictions of when the chip crunch will end are kind of all over the map, depending on where you sit, right? So the car makers are like, ah, it's another year, <laughs> right? Like maybe even more that they just seem tired. People who make smaller things, things with newer kinds of chips in them, they're like, ah, we're, we feel like we can see the end. Are you at, we feel like we can see the end? I think we're in the, you know, certainly inside a year, I think six months to a year. And even, as I said, most of our chipset issues are resolved. We still have some left and we're limited, but we're, we're just about there. The shorter term issues for us now are really ironically on logistics, but this is probably another thing that your guests are talking about. You know, just this bizarre thing where, you know, really there's just not enough big cases to put things in to ship them over the water. You know, it's really a strange (laughs) dynamic. Is there a container ship loaded up with Logitech mice and keyboards just waiting to get into a port somewhere right now? Oh, for sure. And it was a little worse for us last quarter when we were going into Europe. But yeah, there are. I mean, and there are in almost every company, by the way. So we're not unique. But it, this will clear too. Well, I'm just wondering because one of the, as you transition to being a software company, right? The, the, the great benefit software companies have is they can change the product at a moment's notice. They can react to the market very quickly. Yeah, I think Zoom had like reacted every 20 seconds at the early part of yeah, the pandemic exactly. to the market very quickly. Yeah. Um, but you know, mice and keyboards are physical products. People use them 
conference microphones, webcams, like people are using them in ways that were sort of unexpected. Maybe the trend accelerated, but in the moment unexpected. Yeah. And I'm curious how, you know, you know, you're, you're having problems shipping the products, but you still want to change them and meet the market demand. How is that competitive environment for you? Do you see competitors moving faster? They're smaller. Maybe are you moving at the speed you want to? You know, you're never moving as fast as you want to, but we do move pretty quickly. I mean, we have a very fast development cycle for products. We measure that all the time. It did slow down during the pandemic. Ironically, it slowed down mainly because our resources were being pulled into developing alternative components, you know, alternative suppliers. But we're pretty fast. And, and I'd say from a competitive standpoint, I, I love our position. I love the fact that we do occasionally meet small competitors who are coming into the market, who are hungry, who are, you know, startups. You know, it makes us better. One of the things I've really tried to do, Logitech, I've been here almost 10 years now, is I really want to feel smaller as we get bigger. And, and you know, that means you got to have small teams. you got to have them feeling complete ownership for what they're doing, have a lot of freedom. you got to give up a lot to get a lot. And I love that feeling. When I was running, you know, a general manager running a small team, I loved that moment. And so I want to give that to more people in our company. So we're, we're trying to organize that way. And I'd say we're 50% successful, but I want to get to 80 and the 90 and we'll never get to 100. <laughs> Well, this kind of leads into to what I think of as the decoder questions. So the, the last time we talked in 2019, you said there's 22 brands inside of Logitech. They, they have some amount of autonomy. Have you changed that? How is Logitech structured now? Yeah, we had 22 businesses, not brands. So we had, we okay. had a few brands. You know, Logitech's the big brand, Logitech G. Now we've gone from 22. We're, we're over 30 now. We're in the mid-30s. So we keep adding categories all the time. And that's not going to change. We'll keep adding categories as we go. We always have these seed programs in development that are secret. And they're small teams, sometimes run by entrepreneurs developing new things. A lot of them don't work, which is fine. We give them a bonus and they move on to something else. Uh, but it's a very dynamic place for new category development. And it's, it's happening throughout the company. Do those teams cross over? Do the blue microphone folks talk to the webcam folks to make their microphones better? A little bit. Our teams are pretty independent and they work hard. On the engineering side, though, things like Blue Micro, for example, we now have Blue Microphones working directly with our gaming team. We're bringing Blue technology to the gaming mics, into gaming headsets. So, yeah, we definitely try to take advantage where we really got a strong capability in one team and bring it to another one. But I love the independence. You know, I, I love my, you know, playing basketball, you know, a five-person team. I love small teams. So I love keeping them separate and small as much as we possibly can. We probably give up some scale because of that. Right. I mean, this is kind of a, a core trade-off, even in in terms of cost structure, right? You, yeah, you undoubtedly yeah. have some technology duplication on these teams. We do. You could maybe have more efficiency in how you invest in engineering if you shared more stuff. But it seems like you're making a very clear trade-off. Some duplication is fine as long as you go fast. That's exactly right. And then try to be collaborative and open so you, you learn from the other teams. But a little duplication is going to happen. Do you measure that? Do you, do you think about that in terms of the cost structure of the company? We've got a microphone team over here and a microphone team over here. and We do. You know, we have the debates you'd expect, you know, and, and those things flare up once in a while, you know, and then, and then uh, my CFO kind of hits me over the head with a frying pan <laughs> and I, I try to shake it off and then I try to decide to swing back at him. And, uh, but, you know, yeah, we do have those debates and occasionally efficiency wins, but usually uh, creativity rules the day which is more a little duplication. I was just talking to the CEO of Anchor. He told me that they have a, a long process to think about how to enter a new product category. There's memos and meetings. What's your process to enter a new category with all these independent teams? Our business is very organic and, and pretty fast. 
I would not say it's long. If we have a category that we think is exciting, we review the category with a very small team. I've got a very, very small corporate development team that is amazing, by the way. And we'll look at it together. And then if we think it's a, a good one, first thing we do is we try to find somebody to come in and develop it. And if there's somebody inside the company, sometimes it happens organically from one team, splits, splits somebody off, puts them on it. Sometimes we hire somebody from the outside. You know, I met an entrepreneur at a coffee break in a seminar and we hired him. You know, he came in and started a business in one of these and then he, he added a person and another person. Then we meet with them regularly. Their money is separated. They don't get money like venture capital. They get a year's worth or two years worth of money. They get like a few months worth of money and then some deliverables. I meet with them or a very small team of people meet with them every month. We, we challenge them on things. They, they give us updates. Then we give them more money when they look like they need it. So it's a very organic process. And then we look on the outside for m You know, if we see things that we can acquire that could accelerate that or, or replace it completely and just put us in the market right away. I'm scared of M&A when we don't know the category. So sometimes we'll develop these teams with a, with a thought that we'll probably end up doing M&A, but, but we really want to understand the, the products better before we do it. So you, you put together a small team to say, imagine a product that would enter some new category. I don't know. That's My, right. uh, keyboards with a trackball attached. I'm just making up a category. Um, <laughs> That's a good one. You got to make up something. And you yeah. say, really what we think we're going to do is we're going to buy something, but I want this team to understand what that product should look like and what that market should look like before we go shopping. Yeah, but I wouldn't say we're probably going to buy something. The team would say, you guys got to, got to develop the best product in the world, you know, and then they would start and then they don't really want to buy something. So we're, we're looking <laughs> on the side for something to buy. They're not really interested. They want, they want to create their thing, you know. How do you spend your time? Where do you, you've got all these autonomous teams they are off to the races doing stuff. Where do you spend your time the most? You know, I would say I spend maybe half my time on, on new products, new, new innovation stuff, whether it's these teams or on the products teams we have, you know, getting updates and talking about stuff and trying things. And probably the other half of my time is split, but most of it I would say is people stuff, whether it's bringing in people or talking one-on-one with people here. I love to be in touch with people at all levels of the company. So I really try to, even in the pandemic, I've tried to not just be, you know, doing one-on-ones with my direct reports. You know, I really want to be more in touch than that. And I want this company to be like, almost like the small company you walked in, you know, everybody knows the CEO, you know, they, they give them advice, you know, and I, I like that, you know. So I, so I try to do that. And probably, so I spend a lot of time doing that. And actually, I spend a lot of time with entrepreneurs on the outside too. I, Maybe 20% of my time I'm talking to entrepreneurs. I, I talk between three a day and three a week, and I have ever since I got here. And I love that because I feel like I'm really on the edge of what's coming that way because entrepreneurs always are. What kind of decisions do you find yourself making in all those, in all those meetings? The decisions I make, you know, I think any CEO makes are the ones that are left over when all the other decisions are made. You know, the ones that nobody can make, the ones that cross over organizations. Like some of the questions you made about, you know, we'll look at duplication in three places. Should we? make it more efficient or not that's a decision so those decisions are the ones that i usually make i try not to make decisions that are inside of everybody's business if i can i certainly have opinions on them but i don't make them and so those are the big ones so it's really what's the vision what's the strategy what are those those the effectiveness or efficiency choices you can make that are crossing over things and then you know hiring decisions for key people that, that, that i'm going to work with every day how many people are at logitech we've got about six thousand. so you've gotten bigger over the past year a couple of years it seems like we have got a lot bigger. We, we actually we're, we're about twice the size we were in, in people over the last three years. So half our people are new over the last three years, and a lot of you know I've never seen many other people in Logitech. You know, it's really weird in person. That's a good thing you guys make a like a line of video conferencing products. Are you I, like? Thank God, you know. Are you dog fooding? Like you're the CEO. Are you 
lighting up your camera and being like, man, this doesn't look good. I got to find that product manager. Like, how does that work for you? Because I would be <laughs> I'm very tempted. the product manager. I'm <laughs> all the time. I've got so many products around. Like, I'm in the office right now. And I actually was just uh, using our newest product for the conference room. And it's got this really cool follow you feature, you know, if you move around and, and it moves a little too fast for me. So that's <laughs> one of the but I've got new products spread around my desk all the time, trying new stuff every day. I love it. It's one of the funnest things about this job. So 6,000 people, you're growing really fast. How many people report to you? Like what is, what are your lines of decision-making there? I have 23 direct reports, which is a little on the high side for most people. But I really like that. You know, I always say, if you've got 23 direct reports, people say, well, how do you manage 23 people? And I always say, well, if I have to manage them, I can't have 23 people reporting to me. So I don't manage 23 people. I have 23 people who are like my partners, and we work alongside each other. And so I have a meeting every week that lasts an hour where, where those 23 people, each one of them you know, spends a minute and says, or two, and says, you know, here's what's not going right, or here's, what, here's a problem I'm dealing with here's, you should know about. That's it. And then we meet. We have two big meetings every three months. One of them is looking back on what we learned, and the other one is looking forward on where we're headed. And those have different topics. So, but the, it's a fun little rhythm, and it's uh, it's not overly bureaucratic. It's sometimes a little chaotic, but it's super interesting and fun. We need to take a quick break, but when we come back, I ask Bracken about a product near and dear to my heart: the Harmony Universal Remote. Support for this show comes from Wix Studio. Debate time. Who gets more out of Wix Studio, designers or devs? First off, if you don't know about Wix Studio, it's a web platform offering the flexibility agencies and enterprises need to deliver bespoke sites hyper-efficiently. Now, back to the debate. Designers, you can create fully responsive websites, starting with a blank canvas or choose a template for any layout and tweak per pixel with your CSS. If no code's your thing, or you just like to move fast, there's also a ton of smart features, like native no-code animations and responsive AI that adjusts every breakpoint. Devs, Wix Studio offers a powerful suite of homegrown web APIs and REST APIs. Quickly integrate, extend, and write custom scripts in a VS code-based IDE alongside an AI code assistant. Designers or developers, search Wix Studio and find out for yourself. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. We're back. So there's a lot of excitement about entering new categories and figuring out how to do it. I feel like you had to know this question was coming. The last time I talked to you, I was like, what's going on with these Harmony remotes? And just a few months ago, you finally wound it down. Tell me about the decision to, to leave that market. Because that's, that's the flip side. 
you know, it's really tough to, to decide ever to stop doing something. It's one of the hardest decisions in business. You know, I'll go back to the other one where we're creating a new product, which we call Seeds. You know, those 19 new things or 15 new things are working all the time. But I heard Jeff Bezos, I heard him on stage actually say, somebody said, how do you how do you decide when to stop one of those things? And he paused for a second. He said, you know, it's when the last passionate advocate falls. And the person as interviewing said, so who's usually the last passionate advocate? And he said, me. <laughs> That's kind of the way I feel about new products. It's the way I feel about old products. I mean, I grew up doing products and marketing, and I think we can make anything successful. You know, I'm always optimistic all the way to the last day. And I was about Harmony. And I still think we could do something with Harmony, but it goes back to resources and where you're going to focus. And there are people out there who absolutely adore Harmony, and we're going to keep supporting them. But we're not going to create a great business out of Harmony. We're, we have so many great businesses we're in, and so many more we're creating, but and Harmony isn't going to be one of them. But walk me inside that decision. You're, maybe you're the last passion advocate. What was the thing that made you say, we could do this, but we're not going to? Well, you know, at the end of the day, if you think about what's happened in the living room, when Harmony was created, there were a whole bunch of devices sitting around you that had individual remotes. And you're like, man, this is a nightmare. I don't know where the remote went for the subwoofer. You know, I, I know. they're all over the place. <laughs> I got a couch that's full of remotes. I'm sitting on remotes, like 12 remotes. So what Harmony did was it just simplified all that dramatically, got it all into one remote. It was super easy and it was beautiful, you know. Well, roll forward. Now you've got fewer and fewer devices. More and more is integrated into the TV itself or into your Apple TV. And so you don't need as many remotes. And actually the, the complexity is inside the, the, system, the system itself. Now you've got a whole bunch of apps and those apps are showing up. So the real question was, can we be an app selector? Can we somehow be the interface between all those apps and you a different way? Or not. And we looked at it. We thought hard about it. We thought, you know, that's the domain of some players that are already in the market doing a good job. You know, if we didn't, we've got to be able to do something special for them. And after a lot of hard thought, we just thought, you know what? There, we have so many more opportunities out there. Like we're going to leave that behind. So let me ask the same question in a different category. Pandemic hits. Everyone goes to work from home. You thought mice and keyboards were going to be a nice, solid business, but maybe not growing. Now it's explosive. Are you rolling more resources at we actually have to make different kinds of mice keyboard web the the basics that i think about when i think about logitech is that a new area of investment for you yeah you know ironically when i came to logitech in, uh, 10 years ago one of the first things i did uh, i took 75 percent of the people out of mice and keyboards and put them into new things because i thought well this is going to be a slow growth category so we'll grow in all the other ones Little did I know that, you know, the, those categories would keep growing pretty nicely. And then the better we got at innovating using design in those categories, the higher the growth got. And actually, even before the pandemic, we were growing very nicely in mice and keyboards. So we had already put a bunch of resources into it. We already had a really good strategy for growing in mice and keyboards. We're going after different types of audiences. So the cool thing is when the pandemic hit, we were already there. So yeah, we're putting even more in there, but we're already putting a lot in. And we'll keep, we'll keep investing. I mean, I'm excited about those businesses. I think it's very tempting to think of mice and keyboards as being boring, but they're keyboards particularly have become a, like a cultural product. Yeah. There are mechanical keyboard fans that are deep into what switches they're using. Yeah. There's actually just released an adorable keyboard. Oh, there are you. influencers on, on TikTok and YouTube that show off their office setups. Like yeah. they've become a cultural product as, as much as a, a utility product. Was that investment in place or is that something you had to pivot? Was that something that came up to you or did you have a keyboards PM that was like, we got to start making extremely adorable keyboards because that's where the market is. How does that, how does that work? 
we love keyboards and we have loved keyboards for, for years, you know, always, but, but especially in the last five or six years, we just felt like, gosh, we can do a lot more with keyboards. And when the mechanical keyboards took off, you know, they, they took off first in, I think in Korea and they began the game, making gaming and, and now they're making their way into non-gaming applications. And the one you talk about pop keys, which we launched first in China and now it's, now it's launching in the U S and then launched in Europe. And it is the door. They're so just super fun. You know, we do have somebody who, who wakes up and goes to bed, you know, thinking about those adorable keyboards, but I'd say that one is a big business for us. And we got really excited about it. The leader of that total business got very excited about it. We've been talking about it for four or five years and she's done an amazing job. Art who works for her has done an amazing job. Totally. Yeah. We've got a, a team that are super passionate about keyboards. Believe me, they're, they're, to them, it's certainly not boring, and to me either. It's just a really interesting product, right? It, the aesthetics of it are really important, but right, those mechanical keyboard fans, they care about the feel. They will argue about reliability. They know the names of the switches. What's the balance there? Are you deeply invested in switch engineering? Are you mostly thinking about how it looks? Yeah, we've developed our own switches from time to time. We worked with the big switch makers too. We we have a really deep understanding of switches. There are switches in everything. There are switches in our mice. There are switches in keyboards. There are switches that are no longer real switches. They're they're actually magnets. They feel like they got a switch in there, but it's just a magnet. We do that in mice now, for example. But yeah, I mean, we're we're deep in the technology of all that. But you know, when you step out of it, could these become cultural products? I think so. Yeah, I think they already have been, been become in some places and in some applications, especially gaming. And I think it's possible that that could really happen in this space. So I'm glad that you are intrigued by these new pop keys. I am too. I love the, this product. You can pop off the keys and put on emojis. You know, it's just a cool physical thing to do. So uh, we'll see. So, I mean, that was kind of when I was saying about investment. Two years ago when we talked before all, all this happened, the investment was really in gaming and that was kind of laddering into creators, right? We're making hardcore yeah. gamer products, RGB lights, lots of customization. You could see that. That was the Streamlabs acquisition. Here's this big growing market. Yeah. But that is not the same as a lot of people working from home or there are Excel influencers on TikTok now, which I'm very intrigued by. <laughs> and as, like, all these things have happened that were not <laughs> gaming. Yeah. Yeah. Are the products the same? Or are you just are you reusing some of that engineering? Are, are there new kinds of products? How are you attacking the sort of the developing trend that isn't gaming? And do you have to shift resources to it? A couple of things. So I think gaming was really the most obvious and biggest thing we've ever done in lifestyle. You know, we went in there really thinking of gaming as a as another category of physical products, but we discovered very quickly these are lifestyle products. These are people really associate who they are with these sports. You know, these, these are going to become the biggest collection of sports in the world. And so when we found that, we started to think, God, there's really something here. And then as we as we started to look at that, we got really excited about uh, streaming and creating, you know, people like you, like you're doing right now, but on a much smaller scale, who are creating their own thing, you know, want to have their own podcast or want to create music or create TikTok videos. We got really interested in, could we help those people fulfill their passions, you know? And we ended up buying blue microphones and, we were deeper into all the categories, Streamlabs. We went in there first because of gaming. Then we, once we were in there, we were like, wow, this is really cool for general streamers. It's an easy way to set up. You can make money and not, and, and we, we won't collect any of it. And then you can create your own merch. You know, you can have hats and shirts and everything else just with a click of a button. So we decided this is really, really cool. We can enable a whole generation of people to, to try to make a living or at least to try to make a following in that space. So a lot of that was existing technology. Some of it's new and we're developing right now. 
And we're super excited about this space, just like we were gaming. I think it's bigger. It's a bigger space by far than gaming. Yeah, I was asking our team for their, their questions for you, and that they, they noticed that there's a flood of new consumer products and productivity products from Logitech, but the cadence of gaming products has slowed down. Is that a choice that you've made? We're, we're rolling resources towards these bigger markets? I think they're probably right. And I think what's happened is we discovered that we were launching a whole lot of products, and they're all pretty small in gaming. They're good, but they're small. And then we would once in a while launch one like G502, which is the biggest selling mouse in the world. And it would be like a huge product. And it took us a long time to develop. So we decided, you know, maybe we're launching too many things in gaming. Maybe we need to slow that down and really develop fewer, bigger products. And so our leader, you just desired, made that call. And I remember him talking to me about it. I said, you know, I just, we can do better than this. And so we've slowed down. Now when we launch a product, man, it is big. I mean, we launched a super light mouse that was 60, weighs 64 grams. You know, the pros love it. And, you know, that thing is a monster. I mean, it's the biggest gaming mouse, we, I think, next to G502 ever. So, you know, I think we are slowing down, but getting, but launching better, bigger products in gaming. Do you think that on the, on the flip side of the house and the, the consumer and productivity side, you're trying more things to figure out where the hits will be? Because I, w- I would argue that you needed to do a lot of things to have all the, the instincts. I agree. Right. So do you think the flip side of it is you're putting out more products now to figure out where the, the market is? That'll help me with uh, Eugene's personnel review because I'm going to give him credit for that. Because even though he was <laughs> launching a lot of things that were smaller before, it actually paid off because he found the right big one. The converse is actually uh, true and false. I mean, on the one hand, it is true that it's a great way to discover new things. On the other hand, we already know the categories in the, in the core productivity mouse and keyboard so well. And what we've done there is as we've ramped up, they've become big products overnight. As we launched these things, we launched uh, MX Keys, which is a very high-end keyboard, the highest in keyboard I think we really ever sold. And it's a monster. It's one of our biggest keyboards now. And when we launched those keyboards and mice in the productivity selection, they're all huge. You know, MX Master 3 is a monster in size. And remember, we sell in the revenue. So I think we haven't had to do as much experimentation there. Pop keys might be viewed as an experiment, but I bet it's going to be very big. That one you talked about that's really cool and kind of sexy looking, the mechanical keyboard. Are you a mechanical keyboard person? I go back and forth. I use one of our gaming mechanical keyboards for a long time when I was in the office. At home, I used a predecessor to MX Keys, which is very quiet key feel. So I go back and forth. I like the substantial feedback of a mechanical key, but I also like the, the total silence of, uh, of like an MX Key. So I, I really go back and forth. What's your uh, what's your key switch of choice? This is a question direct from our staff. Uh, I'll be killed for this if I answer it, but uh, but I will because I'll never step away from answering. I really like. I mean, I like the cherry keys. They do a really nice job. And I think we've come up with keys that I think at time to time have been better, but they're consistently very good keys. They're very good switches. Congratulations to Cherry. Did, were you expecting the biggest controversial moment about this to be from about key switches? No, I wasn't. Had I, had I been <laughs> expecting it, I would have, I would have answered it faster. I well, still would have answered it truthfully. Well, I mean, this is like a good question. You make your own switches. You use some other switches. Cherry is a, a famous supplier of switches. Yeah. I don't think we often think about those suppliers the way that you might. Why decide to invest in your own versus going out and buying cherry switches? We only invest in stuff where we feel like we could really do something substantial and different, you know, and and we felt like we could do something better and we did. And we do have better keys for the app for the better switches for the applications. 
And then we've worked with alternative suppliers. There are a lot of people doing switches. Uh, uh, you know, there are two or three different companies doing switches for mechanical keys, and they're all good. And I think ours are very good. So I, I we use everybody. We do use Jerry. We use a range of things, and I and I suspect we'll keep doing that. I like the competition too. I like the fact that everybody's really, you know, actually, I think the switch makers have gotten a lot better. I mean, one of the reasons why people like mechanical keys and and non mechanical, the ones that are quiet, is I think the the switches have just gotten a lot better. The competition has really helped. The, the market size has grown, and it's made it a more exciting place to be for investment. So, that market size growing is that a bigger split? Are you selling more mechanical keyboards than standard ones now? Is that going to keep no, growing? No. So you think it's still pretty niche. I guess niche, but it's a but you know gaming's not a niche market, so it's hard to call that niche. It's I see it's mostly gaming today. There are places in the world where a lot of mechanical keyboards are used in China, for example, or a lot of non-gaming. And I think this generation that grew up playing games with mechanical keyboards, they want them in their their regular keyboards. So I think they're the ones that are going to continue to grow that market long term. We need to take one more break, but we'll be right back. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We're back. I wanted to ask Bracken about the smart home. It seems like there are lots of major players making huge investments in smart home products, Apple, Amazon, Google, but Logitech's smart home footprint is pretty small. So I wanted to see what his plans were. I've pushed shanky boards enough. Let's talk about some other markets you've entered. Uh, okay. There's a little bit of smart home stuff in your portfolio now. There's a, a camera, there's a doorbell. That's right. That is a crowded, difficult market to be in. You have to integrate with the two major smartphone platforms. They're they're always at a and Alexa. There's actually three gigantic companies that are always yeah kind of right. in a frenemy situation. Uh, mm-hmm. How is that going? Why decide to enter that category, which is crowded and messy, versus something else? We're in a lot of categories, and you mentioned a couple of them that are in the home. They're relatively small for us. We stay in them because we think, you know, it's a lot easier to learn your way around if you live somewhere than looking in from the outside. So we stay in there. We're learning. We're looking. Uh, we may discover that we've got a big play in there at some point. Uh, right now, it's not doesn't look really big, and you don't hear us talk about it very much. But I like having a uh, you know, little scouting force out there, always looking around to see what's there. And, and then if we get started, we can move fast. So, uh, yeah, I like it. I like our doorbell a lot, by the way. It's really cool. So a doorbell is like a really interesting product. You mount it on the wall. You never really think about it unless it breaks. No. <laughs> but the cost structure for you is, well, you got to run a cloud service. There's got to be some app developer thinking about the doorbell app on two different platforms at least. That's right. You do Amazon. Amazon's <laughs> going to do something wacky with Alexa tomorrow. Like, if it's just a little scouting force, that it's a long cost for something that people cannot have break. So, how do you balance that out? Yeah, uh, but think of the things you learn from that. You learn how to manage a cloud service. You learn how to work with Apple. 
You learn how to work with with Amazon and Alexa. And those are capabilities that are super valuable as you enter new things. You know, most of what we do is actually just tries to make the experience of one of those big platform players better. So these are super valuable experiences to have. And, and it also gives us experience with software engineering and services. And those are valuable, as you said, from the beginning of the call. So I'm, in a, I'm in always in learning mode, you know, and I love these categories for that reason. That there's a lot to learn. There's a lot of stuff happening in the home. I think the home's kind of still a mess, you know, at least mine is. <laughs> it will eventually clean up, you know, and I think it'll be interesting to see how it, how it starts to get organized and clean up a little bit. The we got to get better working with Apple kind of opens the door to a, a number of questions, but kind of importantly, most of your products right now connect to a computer or some other system through a standard, right? Mice and keyboards, yeah. webcams, it's all USB. There's a yeah. USB standards body. That standards body is bad at naming things, but it exists and the USB <laughs> standard continues to operate. Sure. Yeah. Uh, you have a lot of Bluetooth products, Bluetooth similarly yeah. messy, yeah. but existent. Smart Home is not there, right? They just rolled out a new standard called Matter. The three companies say they're all going to work on it together. There's a new radio standard called Thread. Are you in those conversations? Are you saying we got to drive this or are you sitting back on the kind of the new standard stuff? No, no, no. We're very in there, especially in Matter. You know, we're super interested in it. We've got a team that looks at that all the time. And it's just really important that we understand where the standards are going, where Bluetooth's going, where Bluetooth's low energy is going, what's included, who's getting on it. This is kind of the the arteries and veins of of our business. You know, we really have to know what's in there and we have to be able to play. And, you know, we have great people who look at that all the time for us and help us kind of guess where to go next. And we're not always right, but you you have time to correct. Are you in a we're going to drive the standards body position or are you in a we're watching and seeing what happens position? We're not going to drive the standards. We're going to ride the standards. So when it comes to like... Yeah, because I'm just going to break. This is the second episode of Decoder where I've, I feel like I've fallen down the USB-C rabbit hole with a guest. <laughs> but like, that standard's a mess, right? Like I, yeah. It's one connector for everything. I understand it's a beautiful dream. Yeah, I have no idea what's going to happen when I see a yeah. plug like that. And that is something that directly yeah. affects a ton of the products you make. Yeah, absolutely. Is that just a cost you bear because the big companies have decided we're all going to use one connector? Or is it... Are you in a position to say, hey, we actually are the ones that plug to your computers. <laughs> Our customers are confused. Yeah, it is confusing, but, but USB-C is cool. And I do like that they seem to all be you know, moving in that direction, which is helpful for us, you know, because if they can get to one, if everybody can get to one standard, then we can, it's more efficient for us. It's, most importantly, it's just easier for users. You know what? You don't want everybody to be trying to figure out, like, like I was a few minutes ago, trying to find something to plug into something. <laughs> you know, running around, I was running around the floor out here. Nobody's here. You know, looking look at people just trying to scavenge. The CEO the is stealing, stealing headphones. Yeah. yeah, I'm on video now. I'm going to be fired tomorrow. But, uh, but yeah, so you don't want people to have to do that. And, and things will always change, but it'd be nice if they, they change from one thing to the next, rather from three things to four, you know? <laughs> But so like for something like Bluetooth, for example, right? Apple has its own proprietary extensions to Bluetooth that enable features on its headphones that you could just never do. Basically, no one can, no one can do them as you think about, okay, here's our business. This is the veins and arteries of the businesses, connection standards. The platforms are integrating more and more features and doing more and more proprietary extensions. How, How do you think about that threat? How do you model that out? 
you mentioned Apple, and I think Apple has done an incredible job of making easy products, you know, mm-hmm. and including the connection. And, you know, I think the AirPods are just a tour de force on simplicity, you know. It I is. will note that Bracken is currently wearing some AirPods. I am wearing AirPods, and I'm really impressed by how they made something that the differences are small, but they're so meaningful, you know. I love that because I just think, you know, gosh, it's amazing if you can remove steps from a process, how valuable that is. You know, simplification by removing steps is maybe the most valuable simplification there is. And I think nobody's done that better than Apple from what I can see in in the tech world. I mean, it's just magnificent. As part of that, they're actually pretty good about opening up. You know, people talk about the closed system of Apple, but they're also open in many other ways. I mean, the App Store is is one of the most open systems there is, you know. And that they also open up and let you physically connect into their devices. As long as you deliver the quality of experience that they expect for their users, you can do it. So I think the standards are high, but the but that's good. And, the, and as long as you deliver against those standards, you have a pretty good shot of being able to be part of that. And I think most of the big companies in tech are that way to in some way, shape, or form. So I love, I obviously, I love this business, you know, so it's hard for me to be anything but excited about the future. And I do think, see things getting simpler and more, not more complex, but simpler. And whether it's those veins and arteries or the the products themselves, anyway, I'm, I'm excited about what's coming. Yeah, but let me let me push you on that. Every time Apple comes out okay. with a new iPad, they make a keyboard case for it. They're the only company that uses their own keyboard connector on the back of the iPad, right? They've got the three little dots that make their own yeah. pogo pin yeah. connector. They have yeah. told me a thousand times that connector is open; anyone can use it. And I keep saying, where are the other companies that use it? At the same time, every time they come out with a new iPad, there's a Logitech version of the keyboard they've obviously developed with you all because it comes out right away and it works and it it fits a different part of the market. I just see that as like, okay, Logitech's in a a privileged position with Apple where they they get out ahead of it, but you're still not using the open connector on the back of the iPad. I always wonder, what is the dynamic there where – you're making the products early. You get to be at the front of the line, but it's still not as good as Apple's product, which uses their own connector. Actually, we do use their connector. So I've got one sitting in front of me right now that does use the, the smart connector from Apple. So uh, they have opened that to us from time to time. I can't speak for Apple at all. And, mm-hmm. and they're, they're very secretive and they don't share secrets with me. I'll, I'll speculate a little bit though. I really think their rule book on this is more about we must deliver an amazing experience for our users because that's what they expect. And so we want to deliver. And so we're going to, we're going to occasionally let somebody in that walled garden, as long as they can deliver that experience, you know, if they can't, then they're not in. And, you know, there are probably companies that could, that won't get in because they haven't proven it yet, or, or, or there's only somebody that could be, they could support them for that. But I really respect that. I think that's a, it's a tough standard and, and it's made us better. Certainly made us better, much better. Do you think that that, as broadly to the entire industry, not just Apple. But you know, one thing that we've seen is more and more phone vendors have to compete with AirPods, right? If you buy a Pixel phone, the best headphones to buy are the Pixel Buds. If you buy a Samsung phone, the best headphones to buy are Samsung's headphones, right? And that the ecosystem is kind of getting wider into proprietary lanes, right? It's not just yeah. Apple, it's kind of every company. Do yeah. you see that as something that you have to manage against, that you have to push back against? Or are there categories where that just isn't happening? It's always been true that the uh, that there were proprietary peripherals uh, that came with the primary devices. It puts pressure on us to deliver better experience and better products and know the customer even better. And the only advantage we have in that is that we don't exist if we don't do it better than 
the thing that's in the box. And so it puts so much pressure on us to innovate well. And uh, you and I now know each other well enough that you can tell I love that. I would much rather be in that spot than one where than a commodity business where you know I just got to be on the peg and and I'll sell or uh, have more pegs than somebody else. You know I really want to innovate better than other people, and so the pressure's on us. And I like that. I'll take it. Let me ask you about that that commodity product thing. So that's that's kind of the, the flip side of the business, right? You can make great products, you can innovate well, you can invest in basic components like key switches. You also have to market and retail the products. That has changed a lot in the last year, yeah. but then some of the you know, the big re- online retailers, Amazon is notorious for saying, okay, well, th- this product is selling well. We're going to Im- immediately come out with an Amazon label, one of that. What's the dynamic? How has the sales market changed? And how do you think about that? You know, Logitech products command a premium because of the brand and the investment, but you're kind of next to a lot of commodity versions of your own products now. You know, it's really interesting, you know, because when, when the company started, we were an OEM manufacturer for HP, Apple, Dell. And we were still an OEM manufacturer until about five years ago when we exited. And at that point, it was about 10% of our business. And so we kind of went the full range. But because we were an OEM manufacturer, we also had our own products and we sold at retail right next to the same products we were competing with. So we had to have something better because those were in the box and ours weren't. And so we tended to innovate better or innovate, add more features and build in more power for the, the dollar, you know? And then we innovated a lot. And, and so we've just kept doing that. And so I view that as wonderful. You know, if you've got people who are reacting to you, I'm so proud when somebody says, you know, somebody knocked off your product and and uh, <laughs> somewhere I'm, I'm like, really? Oh, wow, you're right. They did. In a way, I, I feel good about that. Now, if they did it and they took something that we owned and they shouldn't, then, then we should act appropriately. But I don't view that as the problem at all. I mean, that's a, that's a, good, that's a good thing. I get that broadly. That's very diplomatic. But in the case of all, all, like, right, people are working from home, they're buying this stuff. I want to buy a G502. I'm typing it in Google or the Amazon search box and hoping it comes up. And those are some pretty important middlemen, one of which likes to make its own products and put them at the top of its search results. How do you manage that? We need to be better at managing the whole chain. First, we have to have a G502 that's better. It's known to be better. And it is. And that product in particular is that's the best selling mouse in the world. And so there will be other things that are going to pop up, including from other companies like those. And we still have to win by creating something that's better, getting reputation, getting getting those 4.75 stars or four and a half stars. And then we've got a really, really good at working within the the Amazon ecosystem. We have to have a really good capability there. And we've built that over the last few years. We're very good there now. And they helped us be very good. And other companies have too. We need to be unparalleled or unbeatable in terms of being able to go to market online, just like we were offline. And we're almost there now. So and we're not going to let up. Do you foresee bringing any of that relationship direct? Do you see your website becoming a sales channel that competes with everybody else? We have a sales channel, but it's very small. It will grow. But I'm not, you know, our primary business is not to sell direct. I like direct selling because it gives you a relationship with customers and you can understand things better, what you should be doing. But I don't envision us becoming like some of the other companies where 50% of our sales go through our own channel. Has this changed for you, uh, you know, in the past 18 months, the the mix of sales channels? Uh, Yeah, it ramped up when we were short because people were so desperate. They were looking, they just wanted to buy, you know, the the logical place they couldn't find it where they normally buy is to go to us. So we sold a lot. So it did change materially, but it didn't become 50% of our business and it won't. Yeah. I was just looking for my, I bought the 
C920 webcam. It was definitely Chinese when I bought it from markup on eBay. And okay. I did it partially just to see what would happen. Yeah. Right. But like that channel's full now. You're selling more, I'm assuming, online. Yeah. Was that an impact? Did you see like, okay, we're out of product. The channel is filling on eBay and wherever else in every other way it can. And we've got to push back against that. You always see products come through secondary markets like that, but I didn't, you know, use products will come on the market, et cetera. But, and we occasionally have a frustrating period where we have to deal with that and it kind of hurts, it destroys the pricing in another channel that really the integrity of the price. But generally speaking, I think it's being managed pretty well. It's a fairly orderly market. You know, it's competitive, but it's orderly. And like we're, we're managing it better today than we've ever managed in the history of the company. And I think we've we've learned by making so many mistakes, you know, and there were our mistakes usually. <laughs> Let's end kind of where we started in 2019. You said Logitech was going to become a software and services company, a cloud accessories, cloud peripherals company. Obviously, the last year plus, you refocused the business in a lot of ways. We're making adorable keyboards. I don't think there's a cloud component to the keyboards yet. We'll see. What's the future? What, what's next for Streamlabs? What's next for the connected services? Is that still where you're headed? Or has this period of refocusing changed any of that plan? We'll never stop being a hardware company. You know, we were born a hardware company and we'll stay a hardware company. So we're going to create more and more great things and we'll enter new hardware categories. So we're doing that. The services component is very, very small for us today. You mentioned Streamlabs. That's a super exciting business and it's growing fast. It's, a, it's very cool. And we're expanding it in different directions. We're also creating new services across a lot of our business today, and those will grow, and so it'll be more and more significant. So I think you know we're we're going to be a hardware and services company, and the services are are going to be a very small part of our business for a while, but they'll grow, and they'll eventually grow. They'll grow. They're growing faster down the road of the business, and they'll grow faster, and eventually they'll be meaningful, and people will say, "Ah, oh, they really did mean it when they said they're going to give me services." <laughs> and uh, and we do, and we really do, and I'm really excited about it. It's super fun. You know, it's it's so interesting. You know, like just I'll close on this. You know, design. You know, design. I think you like design. I like design. It's so interesting. You know, so I was talking to John Meta, who who's a, a great designer, and I was I asked him, what's the difference between designing a, a product like a hardware product and designing a an app or a software, a service experience? He said, oh well, there's as different as can be. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, like designing a product is like designing a chair. You know, and there and like a chair is like the standard for what you for design. He said, and designing an app or a service is like designing, you know, an entire college campus. I thought it's really true and so <laughs> dynamic and so fast. But the, the other difference is you can change the college campus all the time. You know, so it's so exciting and fun. So I think in the future, we're going to be very, very dynamic and it'll make us better and faster and everything because we're getting into services and we will have a service business that's meaningful. When you look at some of the trends that have radically accelerated over the past year, the one that comes to mind that's real is the creator economy, right? We just yeah, see yeah. Well, more and more people are building media businesses at home, building direct consumer businesses at home. Do you see that as a market that you can actually provide services to? We have four big business areas, video collaboration, billion dollar business, the core mouse and keyboard business, way over a billion dollar business, gaming, way over a billion dollar business. And the fourth one is that business. We call it streamers and creators. And, Today, it's a much smaller business than that, but it's growing very fast. And, and I absolutely believe it can be bigger than the other three. Is that stuff like, obviously, it's Streamlabs, but are you like, a oh man, Logitech has to make a ring light? Like, where do you see the growth in streamers and creators? I would never disclose potential <laughs> categories in my vendor. 
but so you're but, gonna make uh, a ring light secret. can i can i break I, on the show that you're, you got a ring light coming <laughs> if we were even thinking about that it would be top secret <laughs> um we are if it, if it even crossed our minds we wouldn't mention it uh we, we're we're absolutely going to do more stuff in that space. We love the space. You know, our, the, the definition of the purpose of the company, which you know is often kind of an eye roll for people, but it's not for us, is to enable all people to fulfill their passions. And you know, creators and who are stu- doing stuff digitally online, uh, and most of them are super passionate about. It. And we have people who are super passionate about. It. So we're creating things all the time for those people, and we're we're doing so many things. To, also in the diversity, equity, and inclusion space, I'm super excited about that. Are directly connected to that. We've done so much there. It's just so, so exciting, you know. And there's so, as you said, very eloquently, you know, this is like the most exciting thing happening in the world during the pandemic. It was already exciting and it just exploded. This genie is not going back anywhere near the bottle. It's all over the place. All right. You're not going to disclose the ring light to me, although I think, I think you have. But do you think, <laughs> okay. do you think the opportunity there is creation hardware? Do you think it's, cameras and lights and stream decks and whatever or is it software and services absolutely both directions i mean there will always be hardware we're good at that you know, hardware is hard as hell mainly because the logistics and supply chain of hardware is hard and then services connected to that hardware is absolutely going to be part of our future we're super excited about that Streamlabs has been amazing and it's been really amazing i've learned more from Streamlabs than any other business probably here since i got here and I'm so impressed by the team that we have running it. George, who just, you know, every time I talk to him, my IQ goes up about 10 points, which puts me at about 40 so far in the streaming creating. <laughs> but it's really, it's really fun. And really, yeah, we'll be in both. We're going to do both. All right. Last question. Here's the other trend that I, I have to okay. ask you about, which I think is not real yet. It's not the creator economy. There is an endless conversation about the metaverse that's happening because Facebook renamed itself yeah. and Microsoft thinks we're all going to work in headsets. That kind of directly implicates your businesses, right? If we're all in virtual worlds, yeah. maybe we don't need mechanical keyboards. Is that something that is just even a blink on the horizon of a competitive threat to you? That you're going to have to sell Logitech G502 NFTs <laughs> in the Facebook metaverse? Well, you know, I do think there will be a lot of people sitting in headsets doing work that we think of as productivity work today or playing games like in much the same way we do on a PC today. But as far as I can tell, based on all the work we do, and we, we've had five or six years of working on VR and AR, I haven't found any better input tool than the mouse and the keyboard yet for that. So I think they're, <laughs> I think they're going to do very well in that space. That's great. Well, Bracken, thank you so much for coming on Decoder. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks again to Bracken Darrell for taking the time to talk today. And thanks to all of you. This is our last episode of Decoder for the year. It's been a great year, and that's all thanks to all of you for listening and giving us feedback and caring about our show. We really appreciate it. As always, I'd love to hear what you think of Decoder. You can email us at decoder at theverge.com or hit me up directly. I'm at Reckless on Twitter. If you like Decoder, please share it with your friends and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you really like it, give us that five-star review. Decoder is a production of The Verge and part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today's episode was produced by Creighton Simone and Jackie McDermott. It was edited by Callie Wright. The Decoder music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Our senior audio director is Andrew Marino. And our executive producer is Eleanor Donovan. We'll see you next time.